Well, good morning. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read um, verses 3 through 11, though our focus will be on verse 3, our verse of the year. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for this passage. Lord, we, help, we ask your help this morning to not only understand it, but to apply it to our lives. Help us, Lord, to become more like Christ. This we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we, we come to revisit our verse of the year, which we spoke about uh, back uh, at the turn into the new year. And like all theme verses, they are good things. They are helpful things for us to keep the truth of God's word before us and to keep our calling before us on a regular basis. However, sometimes there's a fine line between having something always before us and that thing becoming something that is always behind us. It's like putting things in your Bible I don't know if you're one of those who like to stuff things in your Bible, maybe worship guides, notes, bookmarks, little things here and there that you think, you know, I need to remember this, I need to save this. And then you come back to it perhaps a year later and you realize, I forgot all that's in here. Uh, my, my Bible's becoming thick, uh, like my wallet or something like that, where you stuff pa papers and receipts and things like that. And you forget they're even there. And my question this morning is, has that happened to you with the verse of the year? How can we break out of this pattern? How can we jumpstart our consideration and commitment to obeying this verse, verse 3? You know, sometimes we need to have something modeled to us or shown to us in order to really get it. Um, it's much like the difference between reading an instructional manual 
uh, and having it actually demonstrated or shown to us by another person. I think this is especially true with this area of humility. shouldn't come as a surprise that, that pride is probably our greatest struggle in terms of sin. We need to take ourselves less seriously and Christ much more seriously. And we often get that backwards in our thinking. So this morning, we will look at God's word to answer the the question, what does humility look like? How has it been demonstrated for us? And I apologize on your outline, you you don't really have much in way of main points. Uh, Getting back from Haiti this week uh, cut into my preparation time along those lines, but I'll, I'll try to give them to you as we go along. But our first point is really no surprise, but it's a wonderful truth that I hope we can investigate further this morning. It's simply this, that Jesus Christ is the perfect example of humility. The humility we're called to, especially as children of God. I want to draw our attention to the latter part of the verse, the the passage that I I read uh, just a moment ago, starting in verse 5 of our text. This is really the context of the verse of the year in in verse 3. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Christ counted obedience to the Father in bringing about our salvation as more important than saving his own life. Christ's divine equality was not discarded, but expressed through his humiliation. See, this is perhaps a sticking point with this passage. It can be very uh, much debated on what it means that he emptied himself in terms of his status as God, his equality with God. But I want to encourage you this morning that according to this passage and many others, it is godlike to sacrificially give as a demonstration of love toward others. In the words of F.F. F. Bruce, it's not that he exchanged the form of God for the form of a slave, but that he manifested the form of God in the form of a slave. In other words, Jesus, by humbling himself and becoming obedient, demonstrating his love for sinners, he's not acting out of character as God. He's very much acting in character, demonstrating his equality with God. By the way, this is an example of a passage, and there's many others like this, where very deep theology is being taught yet it's inherently practical. This comes in a context of a pastoral exhortation. 
theology is practical. And it should be treated as such. It should be responded to as such. In this case, the doctrine of Christ that we see in verses 5 through 11 uh, really functions as an example of the motive and the motive for the exhortation in verses 1 through 4, including our verse of the year. Christ is the extreme, utmost example of humility and how God is calling us to live in our verse of the year. What does humility look like? It looks like Jesus Christ. If that's the case, then let's look more closely at Christ and his life and his ministry. Let's take a look at some snapshots, some pictures from Jesus' earthly ministry to get a handle on what it really looks like to live out humility. Now perhaps, you know, there's many places we could go here, but perhaps the events which stand out to us in this regard are the ones in which Christ expresses humility in the midst or in the face of prideful people. If you're like me, this talk of being humble and other-centered, that's all right, and of course that sounds like how we should live as believers. But there's usually a sticking point for us. And it kind of goes like this. Okay, yes, I can be other-centered, humble before others, but let's not be unreasonable. I can only be asked to be that way towards humble and other-centered people. Now, often in the Bible, what we call reasonable, the Bible calls worldly. Think about that. Did Jesus take this line of approach or this line of thinking in expressing his humility? Let's look at some examples from the scriptures. You don't have to turn there. You can just write down these passages if you like. We'll look at a number of them in terms of these snapshots, these pictures. The first is in Matthew chapter 5. This is where Jesus says, You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This was a, a common Jewish teaching of the time, supposedly based in the Old Testament, but... Not really. We don't find that. But Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And we know from other passages like Romans chapter 5 that Jesus loved his enemies to the uttermost. That's you and me who believe upon his name for eternal life. Moving on, when he told his disciples of his impending suffering and death on the cross in Jerusalem... He was rebuked by Peter. You remember that episode. Right after Peter confessed who Jesus was, rightly so. And Jesus 
said it was revealed to you from above to make that declaration. And then right after that, he's rebuking Jesus with a notion which Jesus goes on to say is satanic. One which would have an aversion to suffering according to the plan of God. Imagine that. Being in Jesus' shoes, you know, just when somebody's getting it, they show they don't get it at all. In fact, they rebuke you. Again, in Mark, right after speaking of his suffering and death again, and his humiliation, his disciples, his disciples start arguing over who is the greatest. Now, isn't that ironic? Jesus tells them, if anyone be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He's talking about his impending suffering and death very expression of humility, and they're arguing over who's the greatest. In John chapter 10, after saying that he is the good shepherd, uh, an echo of Ezekiel 34 and God's words to the shepherds of Israel, Jesus says he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He gets a mixed reaction from the Jews and, and some of those who heard him say this said he's, he has a demon. He's insane. Here he is talking about laying down his life. They call him demonic. Later, he washes his disciples' feet as an example, a very concrete example of humility and service to one another. And in that pool of disciples is Judas. And the text makes it clear that Jesus knew that he would betray him, and he washed his feet. Can you imagine? Would we do that, knowing what he knew? Later, the disciples fell asleep at a time when Jesus was undergoing great agony, great internal turmoil, asking them to pray. They couldn't do it. Couldn't do it for very long. And then later, as he's being led to the cross, nailed on the cross, He's denied. He's abandoned by his followers in the midst of his greatest trial. Abandoned. And even as he's hanging on the cross, the height of his suffering, he was mocked as one who could not save himself. And challenged him to prove he's the Son of God by coming down from the cross. What does Jesus do? He endures and he prays for them. 
Now, of all those pictures, think about how Jesus has been humble for you in all the ways, in the midst of your pride, in the midst of my pride. So those are some snapshots from Christ's earthly ministry. But the question comes in our minds perhaps, how, but how are we supposed to be like him? He's the God-man. How are we supposed to follow in his footsteps? How are we supposed to imitate him? I want to consider two things from the scriptures that, that provide some help, some guidance here. The first is consider his example as an encouragement to you in this endeavor to be humble and other-centered. I'll just read a few passages along these lines. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Be motivated by that, by his great love and humility in going to the cross for you. One of my favorite verses I often recite uh, is Hebrews 12, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. That is a great verse. When you're tempted to say, let's be reasonable, uh, think, think about Christ and what he endured from sinners so that you might not grow weary and faint-hearted. 1 Peter 2, we are encouraged to follow Christ's example in this passage. And Peter says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What great instruction to keep in mind when you're faced with the difficulty of being other-centered and humble towards perhaps those who seem like enemies, perhaps don't really appreciate it, don't reciprocate it, entrust yourself to him who judges justly. Romans 15, let, it, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Why? For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And then lastly, consider this passage from Hebrews 4 about our great high priest. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's important to keep in mind because the enemy would have you think that he is not sympathetic. He does not sympathize or understand the temptations and the struggle and the weakness that you face. 
He's been tempted in every way, yet without sin. He's been tempted not to be humble. He's been tempted not to consider others. But he obeyed on our behalf. He is a merciful and faithful high priest. In the words of one writer, he tenderly is sensible of your case and most willing and ready to relieve you in your struggle. Now, one way to consider others more significant than ourselves is to imitate him in this, in the way that he sympathized with others in their weakness. In other words, be merciful. One way to consider others is to be merciful to those who are suffering. And many of you do a great job of this. Uh, I see it. I see you reaching out in love. But let's continue all the more. Be merciful to those who are being humbled rather than merely thanking, being thankful that you're not them or you're not in their situation. That's not sympathizing. Sympathize with their weakness. Now, from that passage from Hebrews 4, it makes it clear that Christ is willing and he desires to help be a helper to you in this. But also consider, in his humiliation from Philippians 2, he is willing to go to the cross. He is willing to be humbled in all these ways all these passages that we looked at. It wasn't as if he said to himself, oh, guess, I guess I have to be humbled. Like some of us say when we're going through difficulty and we say, well, I guess I have to be humble here, don't I? I guess I have to consider others. It's sort of a resigned to it, uh, forced to do so. Christ is willing every step of the way. And he wanted to be humbled for your sake. He delights to do the will of God. As the book of Hebrews, citing the Psalms, tells us. It was his joy and good pleasure to be humbled for you. Now, it's at this point that we come to another one of those sticking points in terms of obedience. Yes, we need to imitate Christ's example. But let's be reasonable. Our pride is just too ingrained in us. There's just no way that we can follow after Christ in this. Uh, many, many of us maybe have felt like lost causes when it comes to growth in holiness or growth in grace. However, Christ doesn't just merely provide an example for us to follow in living out humility and other-centeredness. He also provides power to do so, strength to do so. So consider this, his power at work in you. If you were trusting in Christ uh, alone for salvation, his spirit is at work in you. He began a good work and he will finish it. And in the very 
next breath of our passage in verses 12 and 13, we're reminded of this fact. Verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. His working in us, that promise, that truth, provides a motivation to press on, to follow after Christ, to trust him. He's at work in us to obey this verse of the year. As hard as it may seem to live out, be encouraged by that. Ephesians 1 reminds us that the very resurrection power of Christ is at work in us as believers He describes that power as of immeasurable greatness. The same power that raised Christ from the dead far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. In other words, far above all power that our sin has. Far above those things. Reminds me of the line from the hymn, Grace that is greater than all our sin. We have a powerful grace at work in us to overcome pride, to grow in this area of humility. Now, as we begin to dig deeper into our lives and how we might apply these things and really live out humility, it becomes very clear that humility does not come naturally (laughs) for any of us. Um, It comes supernaturally. And that's exactly what the Bible says. James reminds us when he's talking about wisdom, which includes meekness and things like humility. This is a wisdom that comes from above. It doesn't come from below. It doesn't come from an earthly source. It comes from above. And interestingly, it's contrasted with this wisdom from below, which includes these things, jealousy and selfish ambition. That's the beginning part of our verse of the year. Something that we're to put off to avoid. Selfish ambition. You know what James calls selfish ambition? Demonic. That, that's kind of shocking when you think about it. We can think of many types of behavior that we would maybe label as evil, satanic, demonic, would we include selfish ambition or things like jealousy, conceit, things that we all struggle with to one degree or another. But be encouraged, as we know clearly from the scriptures, that nothing is too difficult for God. Nothing. Even us and our pride. Nothing is too difficult for him to overcome. The question for us is, will we believe him for it in this area? Do we desire to be humble? Maybe that's part of the problem. How should, with this in mind, how should we treat others and relate to others? 
just want to give you one practical point before we move to close. James Montgomery Boyce, commenting on this passage, says, We have a duty to see more than another believer's faults. Perhaps that's a struggle with many of us. I know that struggle. To be critical of other people. To always be looking for their faults. Always pointing out their faults. Usually to other people, which is not good. Um, Gossip, you know, and, and things like that. This is a common problem. So how are we to avoid it? Calvin, commenting on this passage, says, It depends on a right estimate of God's gifts and our own infirmities. And he gives this instruction. He says, let us be focused on detecting and correcting our own faults. And with others, regard with honor whatever there is of excellence. And by means of love, bury their faults. Think about that. That's a totally different approach than we often take with other people, other believers, even in this room. Focus on our faults. Deal with those with God. And with others, look for what God is doing in their lives. To give God praise. To pray for them. And by the means of love, bury their faults. Instead of always pointing them out. I think that's powerful, sound, biblical advice. In closing, I wanted to share a brief story from our time in Haiti. Uh, I was privileged to go with the team of youth and adults uh, this past week. Thoroughly enjoyed my time, and I was privileged to be a part of the work there. And my particular emphasis was teaching in the seminary and interacting with pastors Haitian pastors, who many of which were solo pastors of churches already ministering, but needing equipping. And I taught a course on biblical interpretation, how to handle the scriptures as they preach. And I'll be honest, it was very hot. (laughs) Uh, I think the classroom I taught in, the power would go in and out. Uh, We had one fan going, but uh, it was mostly off. And it was probably well over 90 degrees in that room and teaching uh, five, six hours a day. And no Wi-Fi. Can you believe that? No Wi-Fi. No comfortable chairs. The list could go on and on. These, these men who attended, there were about 25 or so, had very little in terms of earthly possessions, earthly comforts, very little. Many traveled great distance just to be there, just to be able to be equipped to handle the Word of God. Some probably came, I guess, as most probably came without much encouragement from their families. One gentleman in particular who shared his testimony during the week shared how he was heavily into voodoo and witchcraft. And God saved him out of that, called him into ministry, made him a fisher of men, And at the end of the week, during our last class time together, I told them, I want to pray for you. 
I want to pray for your ministries as we leave here. And all of a sudden, they all began talking among themselves, talking to one another. And I asked my translator, uh, you know, what are, they, what are they saying? What are they talking about? And he said this, they would all like to pray for you. And thank you for sacrificing so much, leaving your home, your family, to come and share the word of God with them. I know very well, they sacrifice much, much, much more than me. That was a powerful demonstration of humility and love. This kind of humility and other centeredness is beautiful. When you see it, it's very rare in this fallen world. When you see it, it's beautiful. It's powerful. It has a lasting impact. But even that demonstration pales in comparison with the humility of Christ for you. How can we not respond that way to other people? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we stand in awe of the Lord Jesus Christ. His perfect love, humility for sinners like us who are so slow to learn those things. Thank you for your great patience with us. Thank you that you are still at work in us, that you never leave us or forsake us, no matter how much we fail in this area but you are completing the good work that you began. And I pray for each of us here today that your spirit would stir our hearts by the Lord Jesus Christ and his example and your promises and that you would conform us to his image in this area of humility. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.